Today, Londoners have woken up to a very different city. Over half of America is on lockdown. As many of us must stay at home as possible. Hello, you're listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from the front lines of business in a changed world. I'm Peter Tofano, your host and the dean here at the University of Oxford Said Business School. As responsible capitalism faces its biggest test yet, We're drawing on the school's expertise and research to help understand the challenges and rebuild a business world that is more prosperous, more equitable, and sustainable. Coming up in this episode, we'll be asking, do governments and businesses now have an even greater shared destiny? Episode 5, The Business-Government Boundary. At Oxford Said, We've always been attuned to the rules of the game. That set of written and unwritten rules, the laws and norms that define the landscape within which business operates. Just in my professional lifetime, these rules have shifted dramatically in the relationship between business and government. In many parts of the world, one of the implications of COVID-19 is a dramatic investment by governments to prop up businesses, making government, in effect, the biggest investor in many businesses today. How do we see the boundaries between government and business evolving in the immediate wake of this public health, humanitarian, economic, and social crisis? Today, we travel to Washington, D.C. to hear from one of the world's foremost experts on the interface between business and government, Michael Warren. Michael is the global managing director of the business strategy firm Albright Stonebridge Group. Before joining ASG, Michael worked in public policy at the White House, in the Labor Department under the Clinton administration, and more recently in the Obama administration, where he was on the board of a U.S. government development finance institution, OPIC. In the private sector, he sits on the board of a number of companies and private investors, including Washington, D.C.'s public pension fund. In conversation with him is my Oxford Said colleague, Professor Mari Sacco, who heads our international business group. Mari's expertise includes global strategy, comparative institutional analysis, outsourcing and offshoring, and professional services. Over to Mari. Michael, uh, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. And I wondered if I could start by just asking you to say a little bit about your current um, operation, ASG in particular. I know that some of our MBA students have gone on to to work for for the company. Uh, So I have some sense of what it does, but in terms of the kind of issues that you deal with, the geographies that you actually have presence in, and also uh, the work that you do in really promoting the interface between government and and, and business. Well, certainly. Well, thank you, Mari. So as far as what ASG does, ASG is a strategic advisory firm. Uh, It operates at the intersection of the private sector, the public sector, and social sectors. Now for almost 20 years, uh, we've worked uh, with the world's leading companies, financial firms, foundations, and venture companies in tackling uh, some of the world's toughest problems, which are often systemic in nature. We have worked in 110 countries, and in some senses are built for times like this, where you see the intersection between the private sector, public sector, and social sector actors being necessary in order to solve the problem. As commercial diplomats, and I underscore commercial in that, we build a firm with people like Madeleine Albright and Carlos Gutierrez, both uh, U.S. cabinet secretaries, 
And we built a global network of other leaders operating at that intersection as well. Many former finance ministers like Sweden's part neuter, sector experts like uh, Dr. Shish Jha, who heads Harvard's Global Public Health Initiative, are people who are part of our team. Types of engagements that we have worked on range from help early on helping a leading automobile manufacturer to make a company bet to locate international operations in China versus India. We are working closely with organizations like CEPI now to tap into global resources for vaccine de development all over the world. We have worked with a leading water and sanitation nonprofit to help them roll out micro lending programs that have resulted in providing access to clean water and sanitation to over 10 million people. We've worked with uh, one of the largest tech companies in the world to implement a partnership to channel investments in carbon neutral and carbon negative technologies and remove its carbon footprint in 10 years. We have helped a consortium of private banks to enable partnerships in the development finance community and to establish a common policy on leveraging financial assets for positive climate impact. And meanwhile, we've just done the blocking and tackling and helping hundreds of firms grow globally in doing it the right way um, by being value-added citizens, both locally and globally. So that's a bit of what, what ASG does. And we do that as problem solvers. And that means just getting the right answer and one that will last over a period of time. Right. I'd like to uh, perhaps go move into the right, right into the main topic of today, which is the impact of the COVID-19 uh, crisis and the role of government around that too. So I think sitting in the UK, what we see is very much a, uh, a, a government that's imposed the lockdown, of course, but have really been, you know, nationalizing passenger railway ne network, also uh, spending more money to support the uh, employment relationships through this so-called furlough scheme, uh, and also credit to businesses in particular, uh, small businesses as well. And I wanted to, uh, you know, what extent the kind of actions that governments are taking right now, uh, looking at it from the DC perspective, but different parts of the world that you operate, uh, some of those elements which may stay uh, here, here, you know, uh, are here to stay for, that, for, for some time to come, as opposed to something that could be a crisis emergency reaction that may uh, be temporary. Uh, what, what is your perspective on what is the government doing right now and its legacies beyond the crisis? Thank you, Mari. Well, for the first time, um, perhaps since World War II, uh, we are seeing a real economy shock that is moving through uh, not only the, the real economy, but through the financial sector. Usually the crisis we've encountered have been financial in nature uh, and have impacted to various extents the real economy. Um, because of this, uh, governments have had to step in in a significant way uh, across the world to prop up the, the real economy as Tifano would call it government capitalism, the balance sheets are now ones where uh, the government now owns a lot of the real economy's um, balance sheets. And the, one of the central policy questions is who's going to pay the bill over time and how does that uh, all manifest itself? Clearly, uh, governments and business and many social sector actors are working together more, more collaboratively than they've done in quite a while. You have many companies now who are retooling their manufacturing processes to make more PPE uh, for front lines. Uh, people who are giving over 
parts of their business to make sure that uh, we can we can really deal with the pandemic. But those traditional lines have been very much blurred, and how we come out of it will be a function of the types of governments that each country has put in place and how each parts of these sectors work with each other. And we've seen when there is real understanding and to the degree you can coordination between the three sectors, that has been the most effective way to be able to, to not only deal with the near-term complications of this pandemic, but will likely be the best path for recovery. Mm. Yeah, maybe a good segue into thinking about the near-term future is to kind of consider the government's finances. So mm. you know, what appears to be common is that all governments are definitely spending a lot more uh, on various things to do with uh, propping up businesses or, or uh, making sure that people keep their jobs for now. Uh, and then, of course, the public health spending that's likely to go up as well. Uh, or already have gone up. So are we going to see a significant increase in tax rates in all countries to pay back governments uh, and the cost to bail out businesses and workers? And you know, how is that going to get dealt with? Oh, that's, a, that's a terrific question. Um, and raising taxes is going to be one way that, that many, if not most governments will look to, to try to deleverage the balance sheets of the private sector and the public sector. It will depend on the politics of each country and, and who's in charge. Uh, in, in the U.S., if a Democrat's in charge, that will be there will likely be different types of taxes raised than if a Republican is in charge, typically. Uh, but certainly taxes will be, it has to be a part of the solution. It's a question of which taxes and how they're applied. Sticking with the U.S., you know, the, the Federal Reserve has been very clear uh, that they will continue to provide fiscal stimulus for as long as it will take for a vaccine to be discovered and, and to be able to have it produced at a level that gets to herd immunity. And so that could be quite a while. It could be into the end of 2021, as many people think, or even into 2022. A lot of it will have to do with the financial health of the countries themselves. And and as we all know, when you, when you start to spend money like that, you have other effects uh, that can that will take place. So there could be certainly inflation in some places. There there could be a number of economic effects. But yes, taxes will be a very uh, central part of the conversation going forward. Yeah, I know that you also uh, operate in the emerging markets. I wondered uh, to what extent your your perspective would be you know, somewhat different in countries where obviously there's a lot more issues around um, poverty, issues yes. around income distribution, issues around food security as well. What would be the role of governments in those parts? Well, uh, in, in the smaller countries, I should just say, the dynamics are different than, in, say, the, the US or Europe. In Latin America, a small and medium businesses provide about 50% of formal employment. Uh, the small and medium businesses are going to be hit especially hard during this pandemic, and and that's the case throughout many of the of the smaller countries that that they don't have these Googles or the WalMarts or Tesco's of the world, and so that's going to take a very very different uh, path. Not to just bring it back to the U.S., but already if the U.S. is any indication, in six weeks the U.S. lost 30 million jobs. The U.S. created 22.4 million jobs in the 11 years prior. 
in six weeks, we not only erased all the jobs that we created 11 years prior, but significantly lost more. If that is a measure, uh, it's going to be extremely difficult for many of the emerging market countries. And the real question is going to be, who else will help with those balance sheets, right? Will there be a number of central banks that come together and help? Will the World Bank help? Those are going to be some questions that we'll, we'll start to really see over this next period. Mm, right. I'd like to um, sort of pose a, a couple more questions to um, to, to uh, close this part. First is kind of looking into the future. Uh, so in a way, you know, everybody's doing scenario planning and thinking about possible futures and trying to pre better prepare for, for those scenarios if they came into reality. But from your normative standpoint, what are your perspective on, on uh, what's to come in terms of the so the world you'd like to see as a result of uh, coming out of the pandemic, the role of government, role of business, uh, society at large, what's the kind of shape of society at large, uh, both at the world level, country level, and maybe also at the subnational municipal level? What are some of the important factors that you think are worthwhile really advocating? We're going to need to see we're already starting to see it some, but we're going to need to see a world that is much more coordinated uh, at the intersection of the private sector, public sector, and social sector. Those sectors can operate on their own. Certainly the tail risks that we're experiencing now and we will continue to experience are not ones that any one sector can fundamentally address. And so what we're seeing is a number of localities trying to work together to see how we can recover together and that's still very early days, but those conversations are, are happening. We're seeing presidents call governors in the United States. We're seeing private sector actors having more and more of an audience with governments uh, and vice versa. A lot of basic research is being talked about again and being funded. I see a, a world where we're going to see a lot more coordination and a lot more collaboration. And if we don't, we'll be at the country and, and the world's peril. Right. So, I mean, just uh, touching on one aspect of what you said about globalization, that some critics of globalization uh, say that it's gone too far, that the degree of integration of at least the economy, if not other aspects of society, yeah. have gone too far. And, and so uh, some people are looking post-pandemic to a much more autonomous you know, national and subnational economies where food security and issues of you know, business and wealth creation are going to be dealt with at the much local level. Is that something that uh, could figure consistently with the worldview that you had of greater coordination at the global level? Yes. And, you know, perhaps it's helpful to frame where we are in terms of the issues. I mean, the geopolitical assets for power for governments and companies financial institutions really revolved around oil and defense for a very long time. Oil had been, has been supplemented with scarce resources, water, climate, sustainability, and globalization was a large part of defense was still, and it still is a very important driver, but globalization was really a driver. You know, this next phase, we're seeing that global public health and inequality are going to be issues that everyone's going to need to address. And those issues are, are ones that will fundamentally affect the path out of what we're in. And so, yes, I very much see a need for far more coordination. And coordination means more that there's partnerships and working together 
being able to understand that you're solving a larger problem than just making your quarterly numbers if you're in the private sector, even though that's still going to be critically important. It's taking on that shared risk as the balance sheets are going to have to do both for government and for the private sector. The risk sharing is also going to have to be far more coordinated. Now we're going to turn to the Q&A section in this episode, where Michael Warren and Mari Sacco take questions from our audience tuning in from around the world. The focus is how the business world can best prepare for a future that remains uncertain, yet full of opportunity for the bold and mission-oriented. First up, as business people, what steps can we take proactively to reignite business and take fear away? What kind of skills and mindsets should business leaders be cultivating to help the world build forward better? Back to the global business strategist, Michael Warren. One way is to communicate with authenticity and transparency uh, as a business leader with your employees and other stakeholders. And being honest about what you know and what you don't know, uh, that's going to be critical to establish trust. Another is understanding the local and global stresses that your business will have. You know, supply chains, uh, workforce, customers, shareholders, all will have a different set of needs and concerns. Uh, and being able to re-examine those and understand how to build them and make the right type of adjustments during this, this period and after this period will be critical. And it's never more important for, for business to keep their ear to the ground for how best to navigate through these new risks and global stresses. Perhaps really important is asking not what government can do for you, but what you can do for government and social sector partners and stakeholders. When I was in the White House, I was the point person to staff the economic team for President Obama. And um, I was also deployed to really understand what was happening in Treasury and Federal Reserve during the transition period during uh, the financial crisis. And sitting in those seats, many business leaders came to me asking me to fix their problems. The ones that we really were able to uh, help the most were the ones that were really helpful to us. It enabled us to be more helpful to them. So accelerate your long-term strategic plans. Um, this is a moment for any business to seize a white space, that an uncertainty space that has now been created. Be bold if you have conviction and this is where companies are in separation. We were able to do that during the last crisis and we're trying to do that now. And if you want to create distinctive long-term shareholder value, um, earn this by being truly compassionate, empathetic, and mission-oriented. You know, actions do speak louder than words. The saying, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste only applies if you're trusted enough to solve for all the stakeholders involved and affected by, by this crisis and, and the aftermath. Being just exploitive of the crisis is a risky long-term strategy. So those are mindsets for business leaders to think about. No, that's that's really, really thoughtful. And and uh, I have a question from uh, an ex-student on the Diploma in Global Business talking about uh, globalization again uh, and you know whether it's under attack and supply chain starts inward looking and governments inject more money into their own economies and not opening borders. So, you know, in that context, I mean, what, what is it that businesses should be doing? Should they provide more buffers into the supply chain or how, how are we going to think about this issue in, in the planning horizon? Oh, it's, a, it's a terrific question. There's going to need to be both local supply chains that are built and shorn up 
but also a real attention to the global supply chains that are going to be necessary for businesses to grow. Simply turning inward only makes the addressable market much smaller. And over the long term, the lack of investment in, in those global supply chains will have a negative effect on the business. But at the same time, only focusing on global supply chains uh, and not focusing on what's happening locally and really uh, uh, paying attention to the to the ways those supply chains are morphing and changing will cause equal uh, destruction of value. So it's it's a much more complex uh, operating environment now for, for businesses, executives. Technology can help, but spending time deconstructing the supply chain will be important. Most companies don't at this point really know what each of the steps are in their supply chains. You know, the U.S. found very much that it didn't manufacture hardly any of the PPE that it needed to address the pandemic and are now taking some very hard looks about how to establish some local supply chains, but at the same time, not fully retreating away from the dynamic that has been created through globalization. Right. I'm going to try and squeeze in a couple more questions before I ask you to wrap up. And the first is very much about the uh, impact of COVID on enhancing inequalities. Those uh, people who are marginalized in society are getting more marginalized as a result of the direct impact because the virus is hitting minorities harder than others. So I wanted to ask you to reflect on the relative uh, role of governments, but also maybe civil society as well as business in addressing that issue uh, in the decades to come? This is going to be a critical issue in our times, right? And globalization has really brought a lot of millions of people out of poverty, but it's also created some fissures that have caused significant income inequality. Almost every pandemic exacerbates that crisis. You think it's an equalizer because it can affect everyone, but those with more means have more ways to lower the risk that they are affected. And this is where not only just governments, but business and the social sector, right? The foundations, the the NGOs, the pseudo government and pseudo business entities that are emerging are going to have to play a critical role in getting people back to work and figuring out how we can distance learn in a way that creates some degree of, of equality. And those are only for people who even have the internet. A lot of people don't. This is going to be a, an issue that will not go away and we cannot look past. And this is where real leaders will, will take this on, uh, both in a local way, uh, which will be important, but also from a, from a policy perspective, not only in the countries in which we live, but across the, the globe. And without doing that, the real economy will, will certainly shrink. There will be less consumers to be able to buy the goods and services that are produced. Uh, and uh, we could be in for a long period of economic hardship, not only for those who uh, don't have as much, but for those that do. And uh, I'm going to just uh, ask the one last question, which is back to business, actually, and the kind of longer term planning around uh, capital allocation. How should businesses think about managing working capital, given the uncertainty around how long economic activity will be suppressed? That's a great question. Both large institutions and small ones now are, are in some part levered in a way that we have not seen in a long time. We had many balance sheets had significant cash holdings on them that has evaporated in many cases. 
uh, and more than has been reported, particularly in uh, either smaller businesses or in private equity vehicles where you're not marketing to market and, and you don't see the, the effects as quickly, or at least you're not reporting the effects as quickly. The quick that you're seeing the effects for certain in portfolio companies, uh, with their sales drying up, but not uh, being reported. Um, and so working capital is going to be ever more important to be able to take a much longer term view. Uh, and they're getting the sources and uses we'll have to think about differently, right? Um, you know, the banks are in a much better place to lend than they were during the financial crisis due to Basel III and, and, and many of the regulations that have, been, that have helped banks keep more capital on the balance sheet and not get in businesses where they, they had a systemic risk within the banks themselves. But nonetheless, their underwriting standards are going to increase and they're going to feel much less comfortable lending. So thinking about the condition we're in now being the case through the end of 2021, at least should help companies think about what capital allocation they can afford uh, and to prepare for it to go through 2022. So it also is going to mean that you think about your business model a little differently about how you're going to realize revenue a little bit differently and then who your uh, capital partners are. There's still significant liquidity in the markets. A lot of people are sitting on cash uh, and finding ways to get to that cash and create new partnerships are going to be critical for managing through this period from a working capital and business management perspective. Great. Thank you, Michael. And so the time's near, nearly up, but I just wanted to make sure that uh, you you know, covered all the grounds that you wanted to cover in terms of the boundary between business and, and government and maybe give you an opportunity, a couple of minutes to kind of really highlight the key messages that you want to get across. This pandemic will not be the last. There's significant increasing evidence that with climate change in, in particular, there are other global health issues that are going to continue to rear their heads over the, over these, uh, the next decade or two. And being able to have the skills to be able to communicate effectively, to have empathy, to be data-driven and really understand the science, of not only of pandemics, but even of the businesses that you operate and having a firm grasp and, and leveraging technology, which is going to increasingly dictate the winners and losers coming out of this. Uh, and being able to deal with ambiguity and, and risk and be decisive in those periods are gonna be the traits where not only leaders will be distinctive, but where you will have the most impact in the world. And finally, I'll just say, make sure you, you spend time finding three or four other people who you feel you can work with to really solve the problems that you have and be able to help others. Because this is, this is a moment where the collective is going to go far further than the individual. In the final part of this episode, we're spinning the globe and shifting our focus to Africa. Africans make up only 2% of MBA students around the world, which is silly when you think that they make up 16% of global population or 6 to 7% of global GDP. Some years ago, I committed to making sure that we would have at least 10% of our students in our MBA program at Said Business School from Africa. It seemed at the time an outlandish claim. This year, I'm proud to say that that figure is 13% and they add remarkably to our community. Reflecting that African perspective, 
Now we're going to hear from one of the clearest thinkers on governance and leadership on the continent, Dr. Mo Ibrahim. In 2006, Dr. Ibrahim established the Mo Ibrahim Foundation with one focus, the critical importance of governance and leadership for Africa when it comes to improving the lives of its citizens. Each year, the Ibrahim Prize for Excellence in African Leadership is awarded to a former executive head of state or government. Here you'll hear Mo in conversation with Professor Wale Adebowani, director of the African Studies Center at Oxford. First off, how can the private sector enhance good governance rather than seeking to take advantage of bad governance? We hope that the private sector start first by improving corporate governance. A lot of problems we have is because of bad corporate governance. I think business ought to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And we start with ourselves before, you know, stand on our soapbox and lecture everybody, etc. We look at ourselves first. What are we doing with issues like climate? Are we addressing our own carbon footprint? in our business and our supply chain. What we're doing about that is a problem. Then uh, gender issues. Do we protect human rights? Do we, then taxation. Do we pay our fair tax? If you do well in your organization, demonstrate that you have the moral values. You look at your boards. How many African-Americans are on the board of American companies? And we need to face that in the United States. Do something about your own crime. You started your country with genocide against the Indians. Then you went into slavery. You need to stand up and face it. But I think business has a role to play, really, in dealing with all these issues. So we are really fighting for better governance in business. So please, for our business people, start with yourself before you try to go and improve governance you know, public governance, because actually public governance probably is better than your governance in your own company. Uh, so let us be honest. So yes, because I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering how you think the issue of governance is central to the question of the pandemic, but also to other issues which you raised. So how do you think that uh, the issue of governance is uh, central or relevant in addressing these questions? Absolutely, absolutely. Because governance about delivery of public goods. Of course, health is one of these public goods need to be delivered, but also need to deliver equitably. I mean, we need to take care of all health problems we have. And Africa has a lot of health issues. People are still dying of AIDS. We need to pay attention to that as well. There is health, there is a food security. Now, Food security also is not only disrupted by COVID, it's also the, disrupted by the locust attack in East Africa. Millions of people uh, are going to face hunger because of the devastation of crops in East Africa. So you need to balance your act. You need to see how the delivery of A is necessary for delivery of B and then C, etc. It brings us back to the, what we always said, governance is, cent is central. Good governance is central for the broader reaction. Yes, um, finally, against the backdrop of the African Leadership Prize, I'm wondering what you think is the most critical role of uh, philanthropists in Africa today. Is it the long-term planning, uh, or do you think that what's most critical for uh, African philanthropists at this point is 
you know, the health emergency, which is uh, in this period of pandemic? Look, there are always going to be pandemics, okay? Well, and Africa suffered from so many of these pandemics. After this one, there will be another one and another one. What we need to do is also to pay attention to the long-term solutions. So if you talk about philanthropy, I mean, philanthropy has many faces. You can focus your resources in sending food or sending masks or sending ventilators to where it is needed, it's fine. But what is going to happen in the next one? What is going to happen in the one after that? I, I believe that empowering us to have the right policies. Why do we need ventilators and felicity? Why we don't have enough beds anyway to deal with people? Why we're not paying attention to, to the, the, the uh, health sector? Now? Why are not building resilience in that? Why are not building our statistical offices to have proper data to guide our policies? Why we're not paying for attention for agriculture in order to feed our people? I think these are central issues. And some philanthropists try to fill in the gaps. In our foundation, we're trying to address why we have these gaps in the first place. Let us try to make sure that our governments govern well. We fight corruption, we fight uh, uh, bad policies, uh, uh, ethnic divisions, uh, sexual division, you know, all gender issues. We need to deal with all that in order to produce a healthy society and a proper government function. So we need to create or focus some attention about governance and, and leadership. Let us improve it, because that's for everybody's benefit. My thanks to Dr. Mo Ibrahim, Professor Wale Adebowani, Professor Mari Sacco, and Michael Warren. My name is Peter Tavano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from the University of Oxford's Side Business School. Take a moment now to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about the series, please visit OxfordAnswers.org.